I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Jay Rothman, a professor, practitioner, and author in the field of conflict resolution for the past 30 years. In the course of his career, Jay has worked with diplomats, business executives, opposing leaders of embattled communities, union leaders, university leadership, school boards and superintendents, community activists, and students around the world. He has lectured and taught around the country and the world, including the University of Cincinnati and Antioch University in the US and Hebrew University and Bar Ilan University in Israel. He is also the founder of the ARIA Group, an independent firm focusing on conflict resolution, consultation, and training. So Jay, welcome to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. Glad to be with you. So let's start with hearing about how you got interested in the field. And just for our listeners, I think it might be fun to know that Jay and I actually met 38 years ago studying Hebrew in Israel, and we just reconnected. So it's really a delight. I'm so happy that we did that. But tell us about the, your background in the field, how you got involved in, in conflict resolution. Sure. Well, and I also have been reveling in our reconnection. And it, in fact, it set me down thinking a little bit about this past and, and your question about how I got into this field. To think broadly, it's basically I've always been seeking the creative path. That is, things that are, are meaningful and purposeful. And most specifically, I've always looked for kind of the third way. You know, not this way or not that way, but the integration of the best of both. And that has been my character. That's been my practice. And I spoke with the 85-year-old teacher of mine has since passed away when I was writing about how I got into this field. And she reminded me of a story when I was in her second grade about having told her she needed to stop a conflict. And she sort of said to me, well, what do you think you should do? And I said to her, I don't know. I'm just a kid. And she said, no, I think you probably know. And she said, I proceeded to gather everybody together and lead a meeting and got to a pretty happy outcome. So apparently it's what I've always done. And that then turned into a career. And I just wanted to mention also that conflict resolution was not its own field until about the time that you started. I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you were in the first program. Exactly. You were in the first program and one of the first, I think the first class, in fact, That's right. of the first program, which is really amazing. Because you know, I think of conflict resolution as being part of psychology, sociology, political science, uh, law. I mean, it, it, it permeates so many different fields, but being its own field was a new idea. Right. It is, it is deeply multidisciplinary. And in fact, my sort of main teacher, his name was John Burton. He is formerly a diplomat who got disenchanted from power politics and created a new path to international relations, basically a path focusing on human needs. And he would say to me that our field will be successful when it infiltrates all the other fields. So that when indeed psychologists and educators and city leaders and, and so forth are able to really understand in a more sophisticated way how conflict can be an ally and how to avoid and overcome conflict when it's destructive. So it's really in many ways a field for fields. It's an educational approach to dealing with the life dynamics of conflict and ideally cooperation. Well, we certainly need something that integrates uh, specialties instead of just being another specialty. Exactly. So I'm, I'm yes. happy to hear you say that. 
so was there anything in your personal background that led you to want to, to that attracted you to conflict in general? Well, in addition to this sort of personality approach of mine, always looking for the third way and sort of being a natural mediator, I made my way to the Middle East, to Israel, when I was uh, 17 years old, basically because I was traveling in Europe and it was getting cold. This was after high school. And I wanted to go visit a friend that I had. And, and while I grew up Jewish, it was not an important part of my life at all. My parents actually decided pretty clearly to assimilate and just become Americans. We had Hanukkah and Passover, but we didn't pay any attention really to it. But so when I went to Israel, all of a sudden, I discovered that this identity was important to me. And I grew up an atheist, and I all of a sudden discovered that having, having a faith was really meaningful. So I was in conflict with myself. I was in conflict with my own background, in some ways with my own universalism, now adopting my own cultural heritage and particularism. And this conflict then led me to look at the conflict between my people and another people, the Palestinians. And this raised a whole nother level of conflict with me, which is how is it that by expressing our identity as Jews, we are in conflict with others who are seeking to express their identity as Palestinians in, in this case. And, and that led me to a focus um, on conflict resolution, got me to grad school. And in many ways, I went to grad school in order to see if I could do anything about this conflict in my own breast and the conflict between my people and, and the Palestinian people. And indeed, that is where I, I did my dissertation. Um, I went to, went to Jerusalem and uh, began to develop the methodology that I use to this day um, as, as part of my dissertation research. Well, and there's probably no uh, richer and deeper and more intractable conflict. <laughs> I mean, not that there aren't others that are up there, but uh, it's maybe the, uh, in the top three that any, almost anyone would think of as, as a yeah, dif difficult yeah. to solve conflict. It certainly is. And that's been my specialty, those things that are seen as hopeless. But I, one of the first things I do is I, I try to get away from that word intractable, which indeed does say hopeless. And I talk about deeply intransigent, or more precisely, I talk about it as identity-based conflict. And my particular sort of mother conflict is Jerusalem, right? Uh, you could say this is the most difficult conflict in the world. You could also say it's a conflict which is embedded in people's lives, in their search for meaning and purpose. And, and here's where it, where it gets quite, quite conceptually and practically interesting. It's also embedded in something called agonism. Agonism is a really interesting concept of democracy. It's pretty recent, just in the last 30, 40 years. And what it says is, in order to have democracy, we have to have radical difference. That difference is what brings the possibility of pluralism. Pluralism is at the core of democracy. So Jerusalem is nothing if it's not agonistic. You have all of these different identities filled with meaning and purpose. And they're clashing with each other on the one hand. On the other hand, they're unified in this sort of passionate pursuit of meaning and purpose. Not everybody and all the time, but, you know, in a general sense, Jerusalem is this very vibrant, vital place, and it's filled with people who have radically different views from each other. One of the surprises is not that it blows up from time to time in conflict, but that it's most of the time in peace and cooperation. And indeed, that was the beginning of my work, was how do we begin to transform and discover those opportunities and those realities of peace even in situations that seem desperately conflictual and, and destructively so. Now, it's interesting that you emphasize identity 
because uh, in the situation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so much has to do with security on, on the Israeli side, at least, uh, of you know having a long history of persecutions and annihilations and needing to have a place that's safe, and that that would be like the number one, I think, priority. Right. Whereas identity certainly comes into the picture, but yeah. Yeah. I would think that would be in some ways secondary, unless you say identity, uh, security for whom. So let me let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about really my first intervention when I was doing my dissertation, adapting this approach that my teacher taught me about international problem solving, where you bring sides from, from desperately difficult conflicts together to come up with a new definition of what the problem is about, a definition that they can share, a both-and definition. That's how you start. So not my definition of what you've done to me or your definition of what I've done to you, but our definition of this conflict dynamic. So that's what I was trying to turn into a method. And I had Israeli Jews and Israeli Palestinians who were Hebrew University students where I was doing my dissertation research come to retreats with me. I did six of them in a row in pretty close proximity. But it was the very first one that was perhaps the most memorable. And this issue of security and safety became a central theme. So we had eight, eight participants, four Israeli Jews and four Israeli Palestinians who were coming for a weekend. I was supported by a co-facilitator who is Palestinian, given that I'm, I'm Jewish. So we have the balance of the facilitators matching the participants. Seven people had arrived. In the eighth, and a Palestinian Israeli had not. And we were all getting impatient and concerned. And finally, he comes into the seminar room, which is, it's in a space very separate from Jerusalem. It's called Tantur. It's actually owned by the Catholics, by the Vatican, in fact. And it's a retreat center where Jews and, and Palestinians used to meet uh, in a very secure, quiet, peaceful place. This becomes important to the story, as you'll hear in a second. So he arrives out of breath, looking very flustered. And we say, Ahmed, what happened? Why, why are you late? Why are you looking so upset? And he said, I was coming here on the bus and minding my own business. And next to me was a young Israeli girl. Maybe she was eight or 10. And, and I see her looking at me. And then all of a sudden, I see her getting a little alarmed. And then she looks up on the in the bus. In the bus, there's a sign that says in Hebrew, beware of suspicious objects. Now, this is 1989, when the second intifada is happening, and his first intifada is happening in Israel, and there are lots of fears of terrorism and bombs on buses and so forth. So she's looking at the sign, beware of suspicious objects, then she looks at me, and then she looks at the sign, and her head sort of snaps back and forth between me and the sign, and then she jumps up, and she runs to the other side of the bus, and she says, Arab, Arab. And I say to myself, why am I coming to a dialogue? about peace and conflict resolution when conflict begins here with an eight-year-old. This is useless. This is futile. This is a silly thing to do. Worse than that. And he said, so I just came to tell you I can't stay. And then Yael, one of the Israeli partic participants, really Jewish participants, said to him, Ahmed, that doesn't, your story is, is, is upsetting and I'm sorry that you had it happen, but that's exactly why we're here. So that won't happen anymore, so that we'll have a deeper understanding of each other and we will try to break down such barriers. And Ahmed kind of shook his head sadly and said, Yael, you just don't understand the situation we're in and I, I can't explain it any better. He said, however, I'll stay because I said I would. So, so this antagonism is, is really surfaced and it's very deep. 
And we spend quite a long time trading accusations, getting them to try to say, first of all, how they blame the other side, and then moving them eventually to how they take some responsibility east or ownership for defining what it means to them. Moving away from the blame to the, this is what it means to me. This is why this is important to me. And that's what we're moving towards. But it takes quite a journey when these conflicts are so deep. Well, and using your example about the uh, fear of a bomb on the bus, and of course, there were many, many buses that were actually blown up. So this is not just a paranoia. And I, I was in Israel in, uh, during that period, and I certainly would be looking around for anybody who was suspicious. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a normal thing to do. It was survival. On the other hand, it, it is racial profiling. And it's a kind of racial profiling that's probably unavoidable because there's so much fear, whether it's at the airport or in a bus or wherever. Well, okay, so then that's getting to the root of the matter, which is we have to address these root causes like fear. And so let me, let me go on and tell a little bit more of the story because now it's going to come back on the other side. So we go through the day, we're, we're having this antagonism, and my model is, it's called ARIA, just like my company. And we move from antagonism, where it's, we surface the us versus them, you're to blame dynamics, then we move into resonance, which is why does this matter to me so much? And why, how is there any overlap between what matters to me and what matters to you? So the next day after, after four or so hours of this seminar, we come back in and written on the board in very sloppy English is, and not, fu not fully correct English, is Jews out of Palestine, if you don't, do not leave, we will kill you. Now, this is supposed to be a secure place. And our meeting is supposed to be private. And now Yael jumps up, the one who spoke yesterday in response to Ahmed's story, and says, I can't stay here. This place is unsafe. We're obviously being watched, and people don't want us here, so I don't want to be here. This is just not okay. And now Ahmed says to her, she said, he says, Yael, so I think I do understand where you're coming from, that you're feeling very afraid and very insecure, and that's understandable. Uh, and let's see what we can do about that. And maybe it helps you understand my sense of being rejected and not having a place. So we're already moving now into this, not already, we're moving now into this very deep resonance where for him it's about recognition and acceptance. For her it's about safety. And these are the core issues that are often not emphasized. So that's right. If we're going to overcome racial profiling, if we're going to overcome racism, if we're going to overcome injustice, we have to get to the cores of these things. And that's the core of each side saying, I'm feeling unsafe. I'm feeling unrecognized. And then both sides saying, hmm, for me to feel safe, probably you have to feel a bit more accepted and recognized. For me to feel accepted and recognized, perhaps you have to feel a bit more safe. And now we've created a new agenda. How do we work with each other to figure out whether it's at the community level, at relationships, or at the organizational level, at the national level and policy level, we create inventions for more of these things that are so deeply important to people. So that's the third, third approach of ARIA. Surface the antagonism, dig into the resonance of each side separately, find where that interacts, invent possible ways forward, and then plan an action strategy that will move the good ideas into good practices. Yeah, I wanted to mention one other uh, factor, which I, I, I'm not sure to what extent a typical American would understand this, but America has a big advantage of 
being at least in some respects a melting pot, you know, that there's a, a common identity that's around abstract ideas about individualism and freedom of opportunity. And we don't always measure up to those ideals, but that is the ideal. Whereas a place like Israel, there's, as you mentioned, a, an emphasis on identity and uh, people are afraid of losing their identity or, or, or merging into the majority. And, and as a result, you have things like separate school systems for Jews and Arabs, and not only Jews and Arabs, but secular Jews and religious Jews. There's a, a, a desire to be separate, which uh, from an American point of view would seem kind of strange and also not very not very good for integrating people. Right. Even wealthy people, let's say, who send their kids to public school do so because they want their, their children to have exposure to lots of different kinds of people. Right. And that's not the value there. Sure. So what you're talking about is what Ezra Klein calls identitarianism, in which identity really is the organizing feature of, of a polity. And that's very true about Israel. And it's quite true of, of Palestine in confrontation with Israel in Israel in confrontation with Palestine, right? Both within them own, their own selves about identity being so core, past and future, and also in confrontation with the other. But I think what's really interesting about this moment in American history, Stuart, is that we call that identity politics. And identity politics is what's dividing us so deeply in this country. I think identity politics is actually a dumbing down of what I call identity-based conflict. And I want to say, using Jerusalem as the, as the example, and then coming back to this country, why that difference is important. So identity-based conflict is, is about meaning and purpose. What I said before is sort of what Jerusalem is, is all about, the air in Jerusalem, right? What's meaningful from my life? Sort of looking retrospectively. What is it that, that my background, my culture, my religion, my opportunities, my deficits, my experiences, my hopes, my hurts, my joys and sorrows, how have they shaped me in a way that has that I can make meaning out of? That's part of where my identity is organized. And then how do I project that into a future that's meaningful and, and purposeful? And so identity-based conflict are when these sense of meaning and purpose are in confrontation with each other. So Israelis and Palestinians have this deep sense of meaning and purpose that violate each other's sense of meaning and purpose. That's a zero-sum game. And what we're trying to do is convert it into a positive-sum game, from the vicious cycle of violence and aggression to the virtuous cycle of cooperation and coordination and understanding. But it's all there. It's all there in that deep sense of meaning and purpose that, you know, in the story that I told about, if each side is able to say, this is what's important to me, I need to be recognized, I need to be safe. The other side says, I get that, and I get to how my need is con connected with your need. So, so now, if, now that's come to this country, and we're divided by what's called identity politics. And I think it's true. Identity politics is often about ideology. It's often about you know, the language that we use and the espousals that we make. At a, deepest, at a deeper level, America is also deeply pluralistic. And the idea of it being a nation of nations, a melting pot, which then later became a salad bowl, is really core to what America means, I think. Um, certainly what it means to me and where I'm, where I'm patriotic, if not nationalistic, that America indeed is a nation of nations and all of our racial, ethnic, religious identities are what constitute us. And that we are not able to hold that as a positive, but now it's turning into such a negative, suggests that we 
need to learn a lot more about the value and reality of identity-based conflict and get away from the framing of identity politics. We were talking about identity politics in the U.S. and how that has really become much more prominent in in recent years, uh, whether it's the Me Too movement or uh, racial justice, indigenous peoples. And it seems to me and to a lot of people that it's become much more prominent in recent years. And in in some ways, it it maybe parallels what we were talking about with Jerusalem. But in in other ways, I I wonder if it's if it's has to do with feeling unrecognized, but also feeling unfairly uh, discriminated against and uh, not having uh, equal opportunity as the country uh, is supposed to provide. I think it's I think those two the examples that I use of not feeling recognized and not feeling safe describe a lot of what's going on in this country, actually, from both sides. And, and if we reframe it in that way, instead of, you know, my ideology is better than yours and, and yours is dangerous, and we say these are the things that we deeply need, then, then we're reframing this from identity politics to identity-based conflict. And what I'm more, more interested in, Stuart, actually, and I'm working on more and more these days, is identity-based cooperation which is another name for pluralism, where my sense of self, individually and collectively, is expressed in all of its fullness and richness, its meaning and its purpose, and that then combines with yours. And they're different. They might be radically different, but those differences are complementary instead of competitive. That's the ideal of pluralism. And ultimately, I think that's what identity-based cooperation is about, where we can learn a great deal from Jerusalem. We in this country, we around the world, because um, as I said earlier, while Jerusalem seems to be marked by conflict, and often it is, and destructive conflict sometimes, it's often marked by the ability for these different groups to live together separately fairly well. Not that I'm advocating for the kind of separation that, as you described, is there. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a separatist at all. But I accept that in that setting, one of the ways that different groups feel secure is by being and living and going to school within their own communities. In our country, that's not possible, and it's not a good idea. We know that. Um, but dignifying and recognizing our differences, that's really what we are struggling with. And finding those aspects of those differences that are constructive and, and, and co-supportive is what, what I think is our agenda, as well as exactly what you talked about. How do we deal with the sins of our past that continue to plague us in our, in our present and unfortunately look like they will unfold into our future too? Yeah, so on the positive side, uh, contact with people different from oneself can be very enriching and stimulating and fascinating. On the downside, contact with other people can lead to assimilation. And if you're the much smaller or weaker group, actually disappearing ultimately. And I think that concern you see a lot more in a place like Israel and other places too, I'm sure. Whereas in the United States, assimilation is a very, mostly a positive value, it seems to me, for most groups. You know, how fast can a new group assimilate and integrate and succeed in American culture? And if you don't do that, you'll be disadvantaged. So this is, this is getting into a whole other topic. But it seems to me that, that that might be true with lots of American immigrants. And it's probably not true as much with black Americans. And that then raises questions about the value of assimilation as an organizing principle in this country. I think it has to be replaced with the value of pluralism. 
which accepts difference and dignifies difference as our real identity, separately and together. Um, and that's, again, where we learn a great deal from, from Jerusalem. Trying to force and forge a kind of a false harmony is a, a recipe for disaster. Accepting that our differences are deep, probably unbridgeable, and yet even through them and maybe with them, um, we can build something that's good for all of us. That's, that's the aspiration that I, I live with and work with. And Stuart, I actually would like to give a, a, a big example now from, from this work and how, it, how I applied it in this country, if I may. Yes, please. Okay. So, so in 2001, there were major riots in Cincinnati, Ohio, after a 19-year-old African-American male was shot in the back by a rookie police officer, a white rookie police officer. And the city went into flames, variously called riots by the authorities and unrest by the, by the leaders in the African-American community there. And a federal judge asked me to mediate. Instead of going to the normal route of a consent decree by the Justice Department, which would then slap a policy change on the police department for disparate policing, or having trial in her court, she asked me to mediate between the, the parties. And, and I tried to use this process that I've just described of bringing out the antagonism, even about the notion of racial profiling, and then moving into resonance. And they wouldn't have any of it. They, the police chief said, you know, we're not interested in mediation. We didn't do it. We'd rather go to court. And he was basically walking out of the room. And I said, hold on. In addition to mediation about conflict, we also work on visioning about, the, about cooperation. How do you create a better future between police and community based on this deep conflict? He said, well, I'm interested in that. That's what we do. And if they'll keep, this will keep us out of court, okay, we'll try. We'll, we'll, we'll listen to you. The head of the Black United Front, who was a leading minister in Cincinnati, said, well, if the chief's interested, and the reasons he's interested makes it not very interesting for me. I'm not interested in cooperation between us and the police. I'm interested in them changing the way that they, that they work with us and police us. And so, Rothman, what do you got for us? And I said, well, in this case, I have a federal judge for you. Because if we reach agreement about a different type of policing, then the federal judge will enforce it. And this will not just be dialogue, but this will be change, policy change. He said, that's good enough for me. So we started a process that lasted a year. And we got 3,500 citizens from Cincinnati. And I got them organized into eight different community groups. Youth. African-American citizens, white citizens, business leaders and, and foundation leaders, and so forth. We had eight different, eight different groups. Each of them came up with a vision for police community relations in the future, asking not what is the conflict, but what's my vision? What are my purposes? What are my goals? Why do I care deeply about these goals? And then how do I think they can be accomplished? 3,500 people gave us their data. We then organized it through, through feedback sessions over, over a year process. Each group in itself created a, a platform of goals, four or five goals. Then we put them together and we had a shared goal across all of the participants. 800 came to dialogue, 3,500 filled out the data. It was try, trying to be representative of the whole city. It was in the media a great deal that had a lot of attention. BBC, NPR, lots of New York Times, lots of media attention. And we succeeded. We created a new agenda for police community relations based on this identitarian notion of different groups articulating what it is they want for the future. Instead of what are the conflicts from the past, what are the visions or aspirations for the future? But it's really the same model. It's based on purpose and meaning. What's purposeful for us? What's meaningful for us? How do we get there? How do we make it happen? How do we create the change that we want to be part of? 
This then was fed up into the federal court, and there was a new set of policies about transforming Cincinnati policing from enforcement policing to prob community problem-oriented policing. And 20 years later, it's a model of policing. And everything I did in Cincinnati, I learned in Jerusalem, which is pay attention to identity, focus on the underlying needs and values, get people to try to reach common ground about those needs and values, whether they're threatened and frustrated or whether they're aspirational, and then move them into policy agendas, move them into practice. And, and how are things going now, uh, years later? Quite, quite well, quite well. I mean, it, it's, it's had its ups and downs, but it's been sustained and, and, and it has had lots of impact on very concrete issues of policing and leadership issues. Since that time, I think all of the chiefs of Cincinnati have been, have been black. Before then, none had been. I think the same thing with a mayor. I think there's been a couple of mayors now that have been black and that had not been in the past. So that made some very concrete changes culturally, I'd say. Um, but in the terms of policing, policing has had a change of culture as well there, which is more focused on how do we work with the community? Um, how do we have a problem-solving attitude, proactive? How are there more voices that are part of this process and so forth? So, um, And then it's been studied and it's been not fully replicated, but I've done it in other cities as well, and I've, I've learned a lot from that process. So, so I'd say, in terms of my own work, this was the most impactful and, and largest scale that I've done. And what would you say were some of the biggest surprises along the way for you? Well, I don't know if this was a surprise, but it was a great affirmation. Uh, the affirmation was that the youth really knew their mind, and that when we asked them to envision a future that would be better, you know, while some of them were not so thoughtful. They, talk, they went back to blame. Others of them talked about, you know, how do we get a situation which police understand and respect us more? How do we get a situation where we ourselves are more educated about how we respond to them when we're in dangerous situations? So they came up with lots of really interesting creative ideas and were able to work with the other sides in very, very effective ways. And I still remember one very powerful interview, a, a young black woman, I think she was about 16, had just been through one of our sessions. We call them feedback sessions. They'd give us their data and then we'd have them talk about their why these, their, their visions mattered. So for example, I, I would like respect with the police. Why do you care about that? Because my encounter with the police has not been respectful or because I'm afraid of, of these encounters or I've seen people be hurt by them. And then they reach consensus in their own group about what their, their visions were. And after the meeting, she was interviewed by the, the local television station, and they said to her, so, so are you here because of the riots? And she said, well, yes, but all of this started way before the unrest. They started when you weren't listening to us, when you didn't pay any attention, and now maybe you are, and now maybe things will change. And, and that took me right back to an encounter I had in Israel some years before, where I was interviewing a woman, a Palestinian Israeli, who was a big advocate for Palestinian rights within Israel, had done a lot of very interesting work, basically creating a vision of the Palestinian citizens of Israel and, and what kind of pluralistic role they should have and could have in the society. And I interviewed her and I said, why are you doing this? What, what's your goal? What's your purpose? What are you trying to create here? And she said, I can really tell you in two words. I said, wow, you can tell your 50-page document and your two years of work into two words. She said, yes, I can. I said, what are they? Please listen. And that's the same thing this young woman in Cincinnati said. You were listening to us. Please listen. We have things to say. We have changes to suggest. We have ways to help you help us 
live in a different society. That's really quite a powerful summary, isn't it? Because I mean, it is. listening is very different from uh, blaming, blaming the other or, or projecting one's own faults on the other person. That's something we haven't really talked about yet is the, the process of projection that all of the, the, the worst, most dangerous qualities get identified solely in the other as opposed to belonging to both sides. That's right. Exactly. And Stuart, I, I, I was in thinking about talking with you today. I, I, I decided I wanted to, to summarize my work into two words too. And I think I have, you know, I've written, I've written lots of books and I've written tons of articles and I, and, and all of that stuff and folks can access it through Google scholar or, or wherever Amazon, but I'm really happy to be able to summarize all of this in two words. And, and in some ways, conflict resolution, what I call creative conflict engagement, because I'm not always trying to resolve conflicts. I'm trying to help conflicts become more creative and less destructive. So I call it creative conflict engagement. It's really what I call the adult version of counting to 10, which is probably 90 seconds, right? Once we're flooded with emotions, if we're going to think differently, it's probably going to take at least 90 seconds. But so, so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it relatively simple and straightforward. Because our reactions are, right? Our flight-fight reactions are, are programmed into us biologically, and it's a simple response. So engaging conflict creatively, while not a simple response, I have always tried as an educator at heart to invite a simple understanding of it. So here's my simple understanding of my work anyway. Perspective taking. That's it. That if we can help people in conflict take the perspective of others deeply, then everything begins to have the possibility of significant change. And this, I want to play off your notion of the problem of projection. Projection is when we, you know, the deepest psych psychodynamic sense, when there are parts of ourself that we split off and we blame another for, because we can't face it in ourselves. Or that those things that we don't like about ourselves are displayed by others, and then we reject them because, we again, we don't like that part of ourselves. So, so all of us have a violent streak. We see violence, and then we'll say, those people are violent. It's what the Israelis and the Palestinians say about each other. You know, they're violent. They're aggressive. They are. They project, and they attribute these negative character traits. So to do perspective taking, there's actually a prior step to understanding the other, Shakespeare taught us, right? To thine own self be true, and it must follow as night the day that thou can't not then be false to any other. Which is, who am I in this conflict? What's important to me? Why do I care so deeply? What's my trigger, right? What button has been pushed that I maybe helped create, right, in my own life? So to say I'm in conflict with you and I want to take your perspective begins by saying, I'm in conflict with myself about the conflicts I have with you. To some extent, all the conflicts I have with you is I don't say what I mean and I don't do what I say because I don't really know, because I'm not really clear. So then I'm going to focus on you and blame you and, and be reactive and defensive against you. But if I say, I'm in conflict with you, why am I in conflict with you? you, you all of you can do this as you're listening to this. Point your finger as a, as a trigger finger, and you'll see the one finger points out to the other, and that's blame. And then the other three fingers point back to your heart. And that's where we need to focus when we're blaming another person. Why am I blaming you? Why does it matter so deeply to me? Why am I so triggered? Why do I care? Why does this matter? Right back to the, the Israeli-Palestinian encounter. In what way do I feel unrecognized? In what way do I feel unsafe? And then once I see that about myself, 
then I can start saying, now, in what ways are they feeling threatened or frustrated? What's going on for them that they're acting this way towards me? Right? They're not violent people. They're acting violently. Why are they acting violently? So once we can begin to ask that question and try to take their perspective to truly walk in their shoes, that doesn't mean that we accept their perspective, but we try to understand where they're coming from that gives them the approach towards me that I find so problematic. Yeah. So one question I have is, is to what extent does a person have to be open to that from the beginning, a certain kind of psychological mindedness or willingness to introspect? So you have a certain number of people that are already there or, you know, they only need a slight nudge. Then there are others, I would imagine, that are so close to that, that it, it might not even be a good idea to have them as part of your conflict uh, engagement group because they would undermine it. And then you have a, a large number of people in the middle, I would think. So enmeshed in, bl in blame, the blame game. So do you have to uh, kind of carefully select the uh, the participants in these groups? I mean, because I would think that there would be some people who are completely intransigent to taking a, this kind of psychological approach. There's a different dynamic, whether it's interpersonal, um, and whether it's intergroup, and, and what the purpose of the of the process is. Um, so, so given that, it's quite contingent, so it's not quite a simple answer. Let's see if I can give another example to, to, to give an answer. So I've been recently working with family conflicts. And, and in, in some ways, it seems like a stretch for a, a, a student of international relations and Israeli-Palestinian conflict to be working with families. But actually, there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> Just like there's overlap from Jerusalem to um, racial profiling in America or racial conflicts in America. So I think there's, there's an overlap between these identity dynamics within, in Jerusalem and the identity dynamics in families. I've recently created something called an ARIA app, which is a free app that I'm going to offer to all your listeners and to anybody to help you frame conflicts that you're in with other people. I call it a solo app. So it's for yourself, with yourself, by yourself. And it's free, and hopefully you won't need me. That's my ideal, is that I've created as really a self-guiding conflict engagement process. So basically what it asks are, what are your problems with the other side, or what are your issues? Why do they matter to you? And how have you tried up to this point unsuccessfully to engage them creatively? And so the person writes down a couple issues, and they use a, a, a framework that I... I talk about when I talk about the nature of conflict. I call it an ROI framework. Resources on the top of the ice, on type of the water that you can see, tangible, concrete, empirical. Objectives or goals that are right below the water, right below the surface, a little translucent. They're about our priorities and our agendas, things that, that matter to us as we, as we move ahead in our lives. And then at the deepest level, if we talk about this as an iceberg, at the bottom of the iceberg, the thing that sunk the Titanic are identities. So the things about respect or dignity or recognition or meaning or safety or control over the future or uh, justice, identity. You know. so, so I asked them to, to frame the issues given one of these ideas, some of these ideas, uh, resource disputes, um, goal or objective problems, and identity conflicts. So they do it. It doesn't, it's not, it's not asking for a whole lot of thinking. It gives them some multiple choices to, to select. And then they get a diagnosis of what kind of conflict they're in. And it comes up as, is it mostly an objective or goal conflict or mostly identity conflict? 
And then it asks them to talk about the things that are deeply important to themselves. And it gives them a list to choose from. You know, is it about dignity? Is it about these things that I talked about before? Is it about meaning? Is it about your priorities? Is it about resources? And it gives some definition of these things. So then, then a person has a self-diagnosis about their own approach to this conflict. And now it does the perspective taking that I talked about. It says, now that you've done this with yourself, put yourself into their skin and try as hard as you can to see you through their eyes. Don't judge it as good or bad or right or wrong. Just try to think about how they define this conflict. So they go through the same process of saying, this is what they think is the, I think they think is the problem. This is why I think they think it's a problem to them. Here's what they try to do or didn't try to do. And now here's what's deeply important to them, I think. So in this case, between the two sisters, I brought them together um, and I said to them, let's have you each share with each other why you think this is deeply important to the other side. And then we'll have a dialogue about that. So the one person said, you know, I think this is about issues of respect, you know, an attitude of appreciation or high regard that you don't think you're getting from me, some recognition or, or dignity about, about you in this inheritance process, and control. You're able to predict how this outcome is going to unfold. And the other sister said, well, maybe, I mean, almost. I think you got the first two right, but the, first, the last one you didn't get right at all. You're really missing me. Can I explain it now? And so they had a great, great conversation about the things that really mattered to the second sister. And now the second sister did the same thing with the first. These are the things that I think matter to you a lot. And she went through her list. And then the second sister said, well, you got one of them very right, but the other two you didn't quite get right. And I want to tell you about them. So now they're coming in a little bit antagonistic, but I'm shifting it. I'm moving from the antagonism right into the resonance. And, and it worked. I mean, they, they began to really listen to each other. Then, Stuart, I think I might have told you about this. I live right next to a field, and my office is in my home. And I asked them to take a break now and do what's called a synchronized walk, where for five minutes they walk in silence, and they, the only thing they have to do is have their feet fall, the same foot fall at the same time. So they, the left feet fall and the right feet fall. And I invited them. I said, think about what just happened here if you want to, but you don't have to. And then come back in five minutes. And, and before we move into maybe more problem solving and more defining of what the problems are, let's, let's reframe and talk about what really matters here. So, so they came back after their walk and I said, what happened? Did you discover anything or anything meaningful? And the one sister said, yeah, I really remembered that we're sisters. It just reminded me of that. And I think she meant the walk and also the talk. And, and, and it was beautiful and it was deeply resonant. Then I said, okay, I think now we can go to the problem, right? The problem of, of how much your parents have assigned you and the difficulties you're having about that. And now you understand why each of you finds this to be really problematic. So what are the issues? And we spent, in total, this was a long process, actually. I did a lot of shuttling between the two of them. I'm just talking about one short two-hour meeting. We spent about 14 and a half hours on their relationship, relational dynamics. And then we spent 30 minutes on reaching an agreement, which worked. <laughs> Then we sent it over to the lawyer, and the lawyer signed it, organized it, and made it formal. So this is this the, this is all about taking perspective, right? And that that I think is the change, whether it's in Jerusalem or Cincinnati or in families. How do we take perspective by being very clear about what matters to us and inquiring and guessing, and then 
and then having a dialogue about what matters deeply to them. Yeah, so Jay, you use a term uh, analytic empathy, which I think is is supposed to be uh, in contrast to affective empathy. In other words, that you don't necessarily have to feel the other's feelings per se, but you need to at least be able to pretend that you do <laughs> in a way. Uh, and this is actually a form, there's a form of group therapy called psychodrama, which, which does this, you know, you have to switch places, you know, you, you create a, you create an, a scene with uh, an important person in your life, and then you switch places in order to show the audience what, how that person acts and, and behaves toward you, you have to become them. And you don't have to agree with it, but you just have to be able to portray it. One of the things that I studied when I was learning to be a mediator was acting. I went to a, a great mediator and I said to him, how can I become at least a good mediator? And he said, become a good actor. And part of the reason that a mediator needs to be an actor is because he or she or they have to help their clients become good actors. <laughs> because what does a good actor do? A good actor says, I'm going to get into the skin of somebody else. I'm not going to necessarily believe it, but I'm going to find something in myself that helps me resonate with something in themselves. So this whole process, Stuart, of saying to people, First of all, figure out what is deeply meaningful to yourself, and then try to figure out what is deeply meaningful to them. And hopefully they're, they're raising, raising their commitment to, to meaning. That just as all of this is so deeply meaningful to me, hey, maybe it is to them too. Now, do I agree with or accept their narrative or the way that they, they make meaning? No. And I particularly don't necessarily accept the way that they have organized this conflict at me. But I can get it better. I can understand it more. And that begins the possibility of moving from this analytic empathy to inventing. Uh, and, and, and analytic empathy has a lot to do with resonance too. Right? What matters to me? What do I think matters to them? What can we discover in common that matters to us both? And now let's invent ways to make a change, to make changes, to reach agreement. Um, to give an example, uh, my, my niece Talia was in the Model UN back when she was in college, and she was assigned to represent Egypt. And when it was all over, an Arab participant came up to her and says, oh, that was, you really represented Egypt so well. What's your background? She said she was Jewish. She said, what? <laughs> You're so surprised because she really put herself in, into that role. Yeah. So, Stuart, that, that, that leads me to then a, sort of a punchline to the first story that I told, which is which is Ahmed, as you remember, almost didn't stay at the workshop. At the end of the workshop was two, two full days. We moved them from antagonism, which they did themselves, into resonance, which I invited them to do those stories, stories about why this mattered so much, to inventions about ways that we can live with each other better and more creatively, and to an action plan. I said, now, um, what do you guys have to say about all of this? And the Israelis said, we would like to nominate Ahmed to become our ambassador to the United Nations. <laughs> this was the one who said, I didn't want to be there. I don't think this can matter. And they felt that he really got it and he really understood them. And he really articulated his approach and his perspective very strongly and very deeply. So yeah, this perspective taking can change a lot. Now, of course you have uh, people on the other side, so to speak, who don't want to resolve the conflicts that want to win. And you have, you know, not just the participants in the region of Israel-Palestine, but, but also people outside. Uh, and you have, you know, various movements like the uh, um, 
the BDS movement, the, the boycotting movement, and you have uh, trying to label Israel as an apartheid state, and you know, things that will kind of uh, encapsulate this kind of conflict-based model. I just wonder. I just wonder how it is for you. I mean, to to uh, do you ever feel like you're fighting an uphill battle, so to speak? You know, the forces for conflict are so overwhelmingly strong. Well, this this work is undoubtedly Sisyphusian. We get to the top of the hill, and then the boulder rolls down, sometimes on top of us. So there's a faith element, Stuart, that uh, we're making progress despite despite the regress that we. That if we make two steps forward and we go back a step and a half, we're still making progress. And sometimes we even go more than two steps back, but that's preparing us to do better next time. But I want to answer, answer a question you asked earlier and connect it with this question of people who reject, who want to win. So you said oftentimes there are people who already have this capacity to take perspective and then others who don't have it. And that reminds me of a, of a statement from my favorite philosopher, Martin Buber. Who, who is actually the one who coined this phrase that the whole problem of conflict is we don't say what we mean and we don't do what we say. That's what he says. And he also said that, you know, when we ask people to say what they mean and do what they say, which is quite a demanding effort, right? You have to really know who you are. And I, I suggest that conflict is one of the ways we discover who we are. I'm in conflict with you. Why does it matter to me so much? Therefore, what is important to me? Therefore, who am I? Right? So conflict actually becomes a window and a mirror. So what Buber says when, when people say to him, so if one person's going to change themselves and they're going to really try to say what they mean and really try to do what they say, and therefore conflict becomes, when it happens, more creative and less destructive, more honest and less dishonest. When the other side isn't willing to do that, that's not fair. Why would one do that? And Buber says, and this is partly the spiritual belief system that, that I, I developed, and Buber in many ways was my mentor for it, he said, that's not understanding that individual actions, individual beliefs, individual commitments can change the universe. That if I've become different, even if immediately it doesn't make you different, it might. It might somehow, the, you know, the, the pebble in the, in, the, in the lake, perhaps. But, but even it can happen the next day. Right? Oftentimes, you know, if I'm doing a tough mediation, the first day will be the tough one. And then after a night's sleep, they come back and they're ready to listen to each other. Right? And move them from antagonism into resonance. And the folks who weren't able to do it all of a sudden can do this. And sometimes both can't. But one side can. And they start preparing a path that may not be able to go both ways. One of the things that I do, Stuart, when I do interpersonal mediation is I always see individuals separately. I also do that with groups. I see groups separately. And I sort of assess their readiness. And increasingly, when I'm not, I'm hoping not to bring them together to have the big antagonism that I have spent too much time doing because it's exhausting and it's actually, uh, some people call it a controlled explosion. And sometimes that's needed in these deep, deeply entrenched conflicts. But ideally, we can switch people by having them exercise their antagonism without the other side in the room. So I can invite them to say, what are your problems with them? What have they done to you? What makes you so upset? And then why do you care so deeply? And then I bring them together to say, now, why do you care so deeply? And each side can do that. You know, even if they can't do it with the other side, they can ex at least explain their own side. And so, so we're getting people more and more. It needs, it's a lot of facilitating, right? There's, there's a lot of third-party work here. But it's helping people see beyond their own limitations. And I think almost everybody can do that. 
Now, your second more political question, let me quickly answer that, is if people are rejectionists and they are aiming to win and not lose, to defeat the, the enemy, then what do I do with them? Well, the easy answer, which is not so easy, is I actually try to work within the middle range. I try to work within folks who say already from the beginning, I think working with the other side is necessary, even if I don't think it's very realistic. I think there's something useful that can come out about it, even if I think they're really almost completely to blame. So I work within the middle range largely. And, and my hope is that that middle range gets larger and wider, and then the outer range gets smaller and more marginalized. So that's, I wouldn't call it the easy answer, but that's the default answer. So I think, again, the, the identity politics frame that we have in this country, the United States, I think is very self-destructive because it organizes us in these different ideological groups that doesn't inquire about why do we hold these ideologies? What are our underlying values? What's our meaning and our purpose? It's it that identity politics are destructive or is it the way that identity, identity politics is unfolding is destructive? Well, I think identity-based conflict does not have to be destructive. I think it can be, it is the, it is the vehicle by which we create identity-based cooperation. I think identity politics are almost always destructive because they're often used as a battering ram against somebody, some other group. And, and that we have conflated identity-based conflict with identity politics, I think is, is part of the reason we're in such a fix. So our job isn't to, to change each other's ideology. Our job isn't to say who's right and who's wrong right now. Our job is to deeply take perspective of the other side and then see how we can find a third way. Now, again, within the middle range, this doesn't sound like mission impossible. Within the middle range of folks who say, you know, I'm pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, but I'm willing to talk to the other side. I don't think they are killing me necessarily, at least not on purpose. And then we help them deeply take each other's perspective. And then we see what we can do about that, right? The folks who say, I don't believe in coronavirus. I don't believe it exists and on the one side. And on the other side says, I don't believe you have a right to say that. Those are the folks that I try to marginalize by widening the, widening the middle. On the other hand, and again, this gets back to your big question, what do we do with those who want to win and not lose, who reject fundamentally the existence of the other? What do we do with them? We basically try to say that ultimately you too, Deviance, terrorism, and war also probably has its root in threats and frustrations to basic human needs, dignity, respect, recognition, control over the future. So we have to have a politics, and this is teachings from John Burton, who defected real politique and diplomacy to move into this conflict resolution world and to build it, actually. He said, this is how we have to reframe politics as well. Politics is not about who can have more power to get others to do what they otherwise would not do, the de classic definition of power. Politics is instead about a process by which people are more powerful with each other than against them, in which human needs are the purpose by which politics are carried out. So it's very idealistic, but the alternative is not particularly realistic. The alternative is bleak. So I'd say in some ways this, this idealistic um, vision is what's essential for a realistic future. Well, I, I think that may be a, a really good place to, to end. Jay Rothman, uh, professor, practitioner, and author in the field of conflict resolution for the past 30 years, and an old friend from 38 years ago from, uh, from Jerusalem. Um, 
it's been really a pleasure to talk to you. I, I wish we had more time. Thank you, Stuart. It's been great. It's, uh, it's, you clearly are, are not just an idealist, but you're a practical idealist, <laughs> which is the best, the best kind. <laughs> well, that's a big compliment. I appreciate that. Thank you, Stuart. It's great. Take care. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.